Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So I am going to address like my personal life stuff and why I skipped last week. But first, I have some things to talk about. So as you may know by now, hopefully, another black person, Dante Wright, was killed by police in Minneapolis, or rather outside of it. Um, he was only 20 years old. And this was not far from where Philando Castile was murdered and where George Floyd was murdered. And of course, this takes place during the trial of George Floyd's murderer. Um, here are some ways to help out at the time of this recording. You can give money to Dante's girlfriend, China. Her direct cash app is hubby98. And make sure when you use cash app to use the dollar sign before. So it's dollar sign H-U-B-B-Y number nine and number eight. On Venmo, you have Thoy Jones. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's spelled T-H-U-Y hyphen J-O-N-E-S. Make sure to have the hyphen for the Venmo. On PayPal, we have Holistic Ho, um, which is spelled H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-H-E-A-U-X. Um, this PayPal is currently frozen, but it may unfreeze in the future. Then there's also the GoFundMe for Dante's funeral and burial costs. These are all right family members and have been, you know, um, proven and approved by the right family. Then there's supplies for the Brooklyn Center community. The GoFundMe, um, one GoFundMe is the Brooklyn Center Kids and Family. And then the other GoFundMe is the Mutual Aid Support Our Community GoFundMe. Then there's supplies for protesters. Cash App, we have Clam Dunk, that's C-L-A-M-D-U-N-K, and of course the dollar sign in front. Um, they are community medics on the ground currently. On Venmo, we have Zwine, Z-W-I-N-E, um, also community medics on the ground. On Venmo, we have Doc um, M-N, D-O-C-M-N, and they are providing protective gear for protesters. And finally, on PayPal, we have Documenting M-N, um, D-O-C-U-M-E-N-T-I-N-G-M-N, or they are also providing protective gear. To call for justice, you can call the Brooklyn Center Police at 763-569-3333. You can call State Senator Warren Limmer at 651-296-2159. And Majority Leader, Leader Paul Gazelka at 651-296-4875. Um, all of this information was provided by Bailey M. Koch on Instagram. Um, and also, again, I have said this in probably every episode that, you know, this podcast is not for everyone. And that includes, you know, people like, first of all, people do not deserve to just straight up be murdered for committing crimes. Um, and whenever I talk about this, somebody brings up, what murder and rape? you know, we are supposed to have this justice system. Um, and most of the time people aren't doing things wrong. And when people are doing really, really horrible things, like, I don't know, shooting up a church, a historically black church, they're fine. So, you know, no criminals, felons, people in jail, they don't automatically deserve execution. It's as simple as that. And if you believe that, this is not the place for you. Um, also, <laughs> cops lie and mistakes when you're supposed to be like this trained person. It's a lie. You need to learn that cops lie. And 
second degree manslaughter just simply is not enough. This is just something that is being said because they know that they can use the system to basically get away with it. So anyway, if you are able to please donate money to um, Wright's family, try to support the Brooklyn Center where he lived and where he was murdered and where the protests are occurring and also um, helps supply protesters right now who are going through it. Um, the Brooklyn Center um, Council basically banned the weapons that police are currently using. And 15 minutes later, you know, after it was banned, they started using them. So it is quite a thing. And of course, everybody is having a field day with victim blaming. Um, again, this podcast isn't for you if you're doing that. So the other thing I was going to talk about, um, is I am aware of the St. Louis Museum of Art and their, um, exhibit right now about Brianna Taylor. I have read some stuff and I have listened to an NPR piece about it. Um, I'm not to the place where I'm going to be able to really talk about it because I'm waiting for other people who are, their opinions and their perspectives obviously matter much more. I'm waiting for more people to speak out like that. Um, but there is very interesting things with the way that this exhibit was curated, how it was organized, her family took part of it. Um, and she's really happy with it. Um, but I will talk about this soon, but just know, yes, I am aware that this is happening. So, um, now I guess I can talk about why I missed last week. Simply put, I got vax my first dose of the Moderna vaccine last Monday, the Monday after Easter. Um, I use vaccine fairy. I had signed up the week previously. Um, and on Easter, I got a text message kind of in the morning asking if I had an appointment yet. And I said, no. And then I took a nap later in the day and then I had an appointment. Um, it was really easy. I did not have to cancel my first appointment. It was like not that far away and it was at a good time and I had off that day anyway. So it was like really great. I was super terrified. Uh, people who know me in any capacity know that I have a needle phobia, a genuine phobia. Um, even thinking about it right now, like my arm just started to kind of hurt. Like my muscles were like, oh, um, I talk about this quite frequently because I think that a lot of people think that a needle phobia and other phobias are just something that children go through. Um, my experience was during my childhood. In a lot of ways, I have gotten better, but it's still something that I genuinely go through. I'm not to the point that I will refuse medical services, but I am very hesitant. Very, very and I will think twice. Oh, my fingers are starting to hurt just <laughs> thinking about this. Um, it was really, really scary. I talked about my fears quite a lot. And I'm very open to talking about it. If anybody ever has any questions, which people have had questions, and I'm okay talking about it. Um, but I got it. Um, my arm was really sore and I had some flu-like symptoms and I left work early the next day and I felt like garbage. And then I started to feel a little bit better and then I returned to work. Um, work, you know, typically I am moving around quite a lot and the store is warm and sometimes I'm outside. So get sweaty. Everybody does. So recently I've been trying to avoid that and I have used like body powder to help 
deal with that. And I had an allergic reaction that was so bad. I was in so much pain and discomfort, but I did eventually get a medicine, but I did call out the next day, but I was just miserable that whole entire week. And trying to record the podcast was honestly just too much of a thing. As you can imagine, I just was so tired. I had a really bad headache and then the whole allergic reaction thing. So there really just was not the time and space to do it. Um, and that's, that's simply it. Um, of course I still have my second dose. I think I'm going to do a little bit better now that I know exactly how it feels, but I'm still going to have some major anxiety. Um, and at the end of the month, I'm having my anniversary with my fiance and we're taking a little trip. Um, nowhere really far, just like an hour away, like a staycation, if you will. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm actually feeling pretty good. Don't got anything going on right now. My parents also did get vaccinated. They got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And yes, they are aware of the blood clot situation and they, my mom, you know, they're monitoring her, but, um, yeah, in like a couple weeks, I get to hug my mom for the first time in over a year. So, um, all of this, <laughs> um, was a lot to talk about, I guess. Um, you know, I, I can't just not talk about things. Like people, I don't think, no one's come at me and said, oh. So let's start out with the mission statement of the museum. The mission of the Museum of Sex is to preserve and present the history, evolution, and cultural significance of human sexuality. The museum produces exhibitions, publications, and programs that bring the best of current scholarship to the widest possible audiences and is committed to encouraging public enlightenment, discourse, and engagement. So the Museum of Sex, um, a couple of things. It isn't just like this, ooh, look, we're talking about sex kind of place. And it also isn't what this kind of museum phenomena, if we can really call it museums, um, these kind of just these places that maybe exist as art installations, but they're really just Instagram photo ops, which can be good and can be bad, neutral. Um, they do take advantage of that kind of phenomenon, but that isn't just who they are and it didn't just pop up recently. So it's definitely something to point out. There is legitimate education and purpose behind their exhibitions, their programs, the choices that they make as a museum. So we're definitely going to be looking at that. But let's start with the beginning. So the Museum of Sex first opened on October 5th, 2002. And I just found that absolutely wild because I didn't know that they've been around for that long, almost 20 years now. Um... The founder, Daniel Gluck, basically wanted to create this museum that was dedicated to the history and culture of human sexuality, which you can definitely tell by the mission statement. Um, when he was planning the museum, the New York State Board of Regents actually re uh, rejected the application that he, of course, he applied for a nonprofit status um, because they believed that the museum sex made a mockery of the whole concept of museums. Um, the Museum of Sex may have sort of, uh, some people have some judgment because you have to pay an admission fee, which is, it is located in New York City. Even the Smithsonian ha there has an admission fee, if you remember the first episode of this podcast. Um, 
when he opened the museum and built the museum, he decided not to accept funding from the pornography industry. Um, So there was a pretty high admission fee at that time of $17. What's really interesting um, stuff I didn't really know about New York City um, is that adult entertainment venues can't be around churches and schools. I guess that makes sense. But because of the, well, the fact that it's really a museum, um, the museum is allowed within 500 feet of a church or school. When the museum, before it opened, there was some controversy. This specifically came from the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights. Um, (laughs) The museum was called a museum of smut and that it would really only celebrate promiscuity and like all this stuff that you know, the promiscuity causes poverty, which is like a totally asinine look at what poverty is and what causes poverty. Um, and really, it's the shame, not the actual acts itself. Anyway, um, they were all in a hoopla, but when the museum actually opened, it's actually been pretty chill. And they've actually um, had exhibits or, or events, rather, um, about the connection of religion and sexuality. When the museum first opened, it opened with the inaugural exhibit, NYC Sex, How New York City Transformed Sex in America. And um, this, of course, focused specifically on the city that it existed in. Sorry for my computer noise. I'll talk a little bit more about specific exhibits after I kind of really talk about the museum more. So the museum has a permanent collection of over 20,000 artifacts, which includes photography, art, costumes and clothing, technological inventions, and historical ephemera. Um, The museum houses a research library, um, a multimedia library, which includes 8mm, Super 8mm, 16mm, Beta, VHS, and DVDs, which (laughs) makes a lot of sense. They have fine art and um, film ephemera. And then they also have a a very growing collection of um, sexually, they just, here, let me just read what the museum says specifically. An ever-growing collection of sexually related objects that would otherwise be destroyed and discarded due to their sexual content. So I don't know if that could in a way be called ephemera. I know that ephemera really just means um, the basically the medium or the texture. You know, usually it's like paper, not the texture, but what it's like made out of. But is there like ephemera that is caused by cultural stuff? Anyway, <laughs> that's like a, a lot to think about. So some of the interesting things that I noticed about this museum. Um, well, one of them is they had a little section for bachelorette par- bachelorette why is it hard to say parties but when you click on it it says page not found but i think that was interesting at some point they did something for that of course i don't think it would be appropriate now the museum is also open pretty late um on mondays one to nine on tuesdays they're closed wednesdays one to nine thursday one to nine friday one to ten forty saturday twelve to ten forty and sunday twelve to ten forty just 12 to 10. I wonder why it's 1240, but it says also there's a last entry. Um, and it's about two, about one hour and 20 minutes before they close. 
um, which I guess gives you an idea of like the basic time frame that they think that you'll be within the museum, which is really interesting. Um, let's see. Um, with COVID, they recommend that you purchase your tickets in advance online. They're non-refundable. It's just like a kind of um, interesting. Oh, they had a bar. Oh, that's right. I was reading that they had an aphrodisiac restaurant bar. Um, yeah, let's actually talk about the exhibits. Um, let's talk about what's currently on view. And a lot of people have been talking about this on TikTok. So I think that... Um, this will be a little bit more familiar. So if we're, let's not talk about that first. Um, what should we talk about first? Let's talk about the Cam Life exhibit, um, which I think is one of the great things about this museum is that it talks about sex work um, like in a more accurate and um, like realistic and educational way, which is really nice. So the exhibition is called Cam Life. An introduction to webcam culture, and it goes into the history of web chat and camming. Um, and as the museum describes it, the potential for internet broadcasting to blur the lines between public and private life and ultimately create a more democratic space for sexual expression, um, which is pretty interesting. It has interviews um, as well as content from camming pioneers. Um, there's six contemporary artists who make uh, who made commissioned works about camping and um, amateur pornography. <clears throat> Sorry, I almost coughed there. And it also explores the uh, history of it in um, different nations, including Romania and Colombia. Oh, and there's also CAM4. The website CAM4 is a um, partner in this exhibition, which is interesting. Then we have Bad Betty A. Dodson and the Liberation of Masturbation, a tribute. So Betty A. Dod Dodson was a, um, a feminist and uh, sex educator for 60 years. Um, she was born in 1929 and passed away in 2020. She's, they have a quote from her. Um, my mission is to create an army of orgasmic women who would take control of planet Earth, a sex-positive matriarchy that honors life, liberty, and all forms of organic slash orgasmic happiness defined by each individual. That's really interesting. So um, they have um, erotic paintings done by her as well as drawings and quotes by her. Um, there's uh, vintage photographs, ephemera, and videos. And it goes through her journey as an artist um, in, the in 1950s New York all the way to um, adulthood, um, and when she was older, um, it explores monogamy, group sex, marriage, masturbation, feminine, feminism, sexual needs, um, but specifically on the angle of women. Sounds very neat. Uh, so let's talk about, I think this, uh, is a permanent collection. Yeah. So, um, of course, most museums have like a rotating collection. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but the thing that you may have heard of is called Super Funland Journey into the Erotic Carnival. Um, so I'm just, since this is kind of wild, I'm going to read directly from the museum. This is directly from the museum of full, like I'm not summarizing it. Super Funland Journey into the Erotic Carnival examines the sexual history of the carnival, inviting visitors to explore its Oh God, this is going to be hard to pronounce. 
Bacchanalian origins in ancient Greece and Rome. I hope I pronounced that right. And its evolution in pre-industrial Europe and the midway of the great world's fair of the 20th century. An historical exploration of carnival's roots and accompanied and is accompanied by an interactive exhibition of 13 erotically charged games and amusements that allow visitors to lose themselves in the carnality, decadence, and joy of a reimagined carnival. Now, what I think is really interesting and the things that I have seen from this exhibit is it blends a typical exhibit, you know, clearly they're exploring history and culture, but they're also taking that kind of Instagrammable and even, I guess, TikTokable <laughs> moment and like kind of combining them, which is really great. <clears throat> anyway, I'm going to continue. Fairs and festivals have served as outlets for hedonism throughout history, allowing revelers to experience decadent pleasures and quite often vice. Following the Industrial Revolution, fairs and festivals began to be carried out at larger scales in the form of traveling carnivals and expositions. Millions of visitors would make pilgrimages pilgrimage yeah to the world's fair where exhibitions on the midway range from famed designer norman bell jed's topless crystal lassies to a primitive version of a sex robot in 1939 salvador dali designed dreams of venus pavilion to promote surrealist art featuring bare-breasted performers who posed in bizarre tableaus and dove into large water tanks in an aquatic fantasy of subconscious reveries Carnivals and fairgrounds have long drawn on the subconscious, serving as sites that celebrated repressed desires, promiscuity, and rebellion against sexual and societal norms. And an exploration of carnival's roots, Super Funland opens the living history of Al Stencel, who joined the circus at age 11 and documented the midway's underbelly of burlesque, strip, and girly shows along the way. The exhibition then trans transitions into immersive 180-degree cinema, where a film further illustrates the carnival's origins, followed by Stardust Lane, a 40-foot erotic kaleidoscope, where six dioramas depict examples of erotic moments from the World's Fair and Coney Island. One of the most notorious meccas of the pleasure principle, Coney Island emerged in the 19th century as a veritable city veritable? Veritable? city devoted to hedonism. A variety of amusements encourage Lacintus, Lacint oh gosh, they are just using words, huh? Behavior with headline attractions such as the blowhole feature, which explodes the lower halves of skirt-wearing visitors. That's not very nice. Upon visiting New York in 1909, Sigmund Freud himself purportedly said that, quote, the only thing about America that interests me is Coney Island, unquote. Ew, creep. Super Funland occupies four galleries and features 13 original commissions created by internationally celebrated artists and designers, including Bumpus and Parr, Droog, Bart Hess, Rebecca Purcell, RuPaul. What is it about fracking? Um, and Snowheta and more. Inspired by the educational, artistic, and purely salacious, salacious aspects of historical midway attraction, attractions like Salvador Dali's Dream of Venus, these interactive installations reimagine the illicit thrills of the lost world of traveling carnivals and fairs for a new generation of pleasure seekers, blurring the lines between exhibition and attraction for an unforgettable experience. Highlights include a 4D immersive tunnel of love, exhibition tunnel of love ride a biometric kissing booth that measures passion between partners to award prizes an erotic fortune-telling machine with an appearance by rupaul 
an elaborate climbing structure leading to a two-story slide that empties into the museum's carnival bar. These attractions and curiosities have been, been created in partnership with One Night Hotel Apps, Sonos, Wevi, Lilo, Kangaroo, Bella, Cowgirl, and Felix and Ambrosia CBD. Okay. Um, I don't know how they're doing this with COVID, but I've seen lots of videos and it looks and sounds really interesting because I hope there's a lot more like history to it than just like carnival experiences. <laughs> this is just a lot to talk about, huh? So then we have Cabinet of Curiosities, which is selections from the secret collections. Um, and I really love uh, the name for it. Um, but basically, um, it just is items taken from the permanent collection of the museum. And it's like kind of like a rotating exhibit. Some of the items here that they describe, an early vibrator made in Great Britain, a lotus shoe worn by a woman in China, a braille issue of Playboy magazine, um, and there's medical devices, pop culture, mementos, guidebooks, and other accessories um, that have things to do with sexuality. That sounds really, really interesting. So let's take a look at past exhibitions. Anchor is really upsetting me right now. Like I just recorded a whole thing where I was reading some past exhibits and um, it wasn't recording right. It wouldn't record. Cool. Love that. Um, so the past exhibits, there is a lot and they are fantastic. They really are. I'm having a really good time looking at these past exhibits and reading about them. And like I keep saying, this museum isn't just like, woo, sex. They talk about some really great things and people and really explore things. So, wow. Let's start. We're going to start with a more recent past exhibits. Um, let's start with Leia Abril on abortion, which was held February 7th to October 15th, 2020. Um yeah, it was a collaboration with artist Leah Abril. Um, she had a project called A History of Misogyny, um, which of course explores misogyny in, worldwide and looks at the historical context as well as what's happening right now. And the first chapter of this project is called On Abortion. And here she documents the dangers and damages caused by the lack of access um, to safe, legal, and affordable abortions. She looks at the past, the history of reproductive rights, all the way to today. There's audio, visual, and textual evidence that weaves this kind of narrative um, and questions about morality and ethics and stigmas and taboos. Um, so let me read a little bit. I'm going to read quite a lot about what the museum writes about their own exhibitions because I think it's fantastic. Um, so this, it comes from Lisa Rivera, who is a curator for the Museum of Sex. Um, she said, Leah Abril's careful global exploration of the past and present of contraception and abortion reframes the issue, showing us that abortion is, first and foremost, not a political currency, but a vivid lived experience for women around the world, and not just women, um, throughout history. Abril's work looks at the long struggle to obtain rights to family planning for women and demonstrates the complicated decisions women make when choosing to end a pregnancy with their very health and survival on the line. So um, also part of this exhibit wasn't just her work. They also had the Burns Archive and Collection. Um, 
they had um, items from that collection. So that collection is the world's largest private collection of early medical and historical photographs um, from the beginnings of photography to the atomic age. Um, and they had photographs used um, from that collection. Um, next up is James Begood um, Reveries, which is basically an exhibit that honored this man who you may or may not know. I didn't know about him until I read about this. This exhibit was held March 28th, 2019 to January 20th, 2020. Basically, James Begood was um, a man born in Madison, Wisconsin in 1933. Um, he moved to New York when he was 18 and he immediately entered the underground world of drag hustling and pornography in the 1950s he was a drag queen as well as a set and lighting designer at the uh, new york city nightclub called club 82 he also attended the parsons school of design um, and this basically led to him creating these incredibly elaborate costumes and set designs um, both professionally and his own art which i would say also was professionally it was in the 1960s that he turned his attention to what is called physique photography, which is coded gay pornography um, because, you know, homophobia and pornography was like not, you know, well, pornography was not great. So basically it's this guise of, um, yes, I'm looking at like, I want to be a buff dude, but you are looking at pornography. <clears throat> so um, as the museum says here, um, Begood was proudly and uncompromisingly out during a pre-Stonewall moment when rapid social change around gender roles and se sexuality coexisted with widespread hostility and discrimination against homosexuality. His work stands as a crucial link in the history of queer art and cinema, as historically important as it is visually ravishing. So he basically made his apartment into like this set where he would take photographs, kind of like the physique um, photographs of models. And then eventually he created, um, in 1971, Pink Narcissus, um, which was this um, erotic feature film. It depicted allegorical fantasies of a gay prostitute. And um, it was this immediate underground hit, but there was disagreements between him and the film's producer, so he took his name off the credits. And it was released um, anonymously, um, and he remained in obscurity. He was rediscovered in the 1990s, um, but, you know, and it says, uh, uh, Goods work made for the worlds of worlds of male order pornography and midnight cinema has been exhibited in such prestigious venues as the National Portrait Gallery, um, the Brooklyn Museum, and the Musée des Orsay. I hate saying that because I can't pronounce it. And is included in vaunted collections such as the Tate Modern London and Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Alongside Begood's remarkable photographs, this exhibition brings together a variety of ephemera from his extraordinary life, such as vintage physique magazines showing the original context of the work to vintage photographs from his time as a drag queen. Um, and looking at the photographs, it's just like a really stunning exhibit. And wow, his work was wow, wow, wow. Gorgeous. Like, so many of these exhibits I wish I got to actually see. And I can't wait to actually visit this museum one day. So next we have Mariette Pathy Allen, Rites of Passage, 1978 to 2006. And this exhibit was held March 28th, 2018 to January 20th, 2020. Um, I'm just going to read this here. Um, straight from the museum. This is their explanation of the exhibit. For over 40 years, Mariette Pathy Allen has been documenting the spectrum of gender expression. I was actually going to talk about her um, 
I forget which episode it was, but um, where I was talking about artists. Anyway, Pathy Allen's archive consists of thousands of photographs, countless interview transcripts, personal correspondence, and materials related to a career dedicated to supporting and documenting trans and gender variant communities. Work dating from the late 1970s through the early 2000s is the main focus of this exhibition. The selection largely highlights a time before the internet when often hard to find newsletters and magazines were essential lifelines and protests and in-person conferences were one of the few safe spaces to be out. On display, you'll find a record of Pathy Allen's process before digital photography, dark, wor- dark room work prints, photographs from color slides, handwritten notes, DIY programs for events, all records of a time far more limited yet extremely passionate and the hope for a more equal future. <sighs> Just really important photography. And... Um, a lot of the exhibits that they have are like, like these really deeply gorgeous curated, hi, like high curation and um, not high curation, like clearly a lot of money spent to put things together um, and create things like clearly like when I talked about their current exhibits, but a lot of them are just normal exhibits just showing history and stuff. Um, and this one's just like a normal exhibit, which I love that you can have both, right? And I hope that people pay attention to both. Next we have, um, uh, how do I pronounce this? Leonore Finney, Theater of Desire, 1930-1990. This was held September 28th, 2018 to March 4th, 2019. My fiance is playing a video game and he's laughing really hard. Why are you fighting an old man for a sandwich? He's a freaking won't give it to me. Make your own sandwich. How about that? Why don't you guys share? Oh. <laughs> you won't share at all? Then you're going to have to find something else. Anyway. Um, so this is a survey, and it's the first um, United States Museum survey of the work of Argentine-Italian artist Leonor Finney. Um, the exhibit... Um, is all about his life and career from the 1930s to the 1980s. Um, she kind of, she wasn't officially a surrealist artist that was within the surrealist group, but um, she has definitely been associated with that. Um, let me just, again, read what the museum said. Um, about this exhibit and her. Multi-talented and fiercely forward-thinking, she refused to be categorized in any way, especially through gender norms. Her art explored the masculine and feminine dominance and submission. Sorry, I had a hiccup. Eroticism and humor. She also went beyond the medium of painting to embrace theater ballet, the illustrated book, and costume. She not only rejected tradition and social conventions, she insisted that identity, like artistic expression, is never fixed. It must be constantly, it must constantly be open to interpretation and imagination. Her illustrations for the Marquis de Sade's Juliet, secretly printed on presses at the Vatican in 1944, further revealed her unorthodox, unorthodox sense of the erotic, one which led to collaborations with writers such as George Bate, John <laughs> Stop giving me a French name. French name, European names. Throughout her life, and especially in her home in Paris, the Loire Valley, and a ruined medieval monastery in 
Corsica. Finney presided over a, a menage. Oh, I forgot how to pronounce this word. Um, cats and lovers, including two primary partners, as well as numerous platonic friends and admirers whose presence allowed her to live in what she termed a community. Uh, Finney's turn to the theme of masquerade in her art and collaborations perhaps best reflects her understanding of freedom. The powerful self-portraits she produced throughout her long career present women as warriors, sphinx, dominatrix, and feeling goddess, mastering landscape and lovers alike. She, uh, the costumes she produced for George Balanchine and Frederico Bellini, as well as the fantastic feather masks and elaborate costumes she made to wear at grand society balls, continued the theme of self-fashioning and won her the attention of the press, as well as such photographers Carvon Vection, Andre Astier, and Henry Cartier-Bresson. Spanning two floors and featuring works from 1930s to the 1980s, Leonore Finney, Theater of Desire, 1930-1990, will include paintings, books, illustrations, drawings, and costume designs, as well as the objects she designed, such as her iconic, shocking perfume bottle for Elsa Schiaparelli, a design referenced by Jean-Paul Gaultier's Classique and now Kim Kardashian's KKW. A showcase of Finney's extensive artist books will include her 1944 illustrated edition of the Marquis de Sade's Juliet and her 1962 illustrations for Pauline Roger's The Story of O. A large collection of photographs and ephemera from the Leonore, sorry, from the Leonore Finney Archive in Paris will also be on display, documenting her sense of life as theater. Wow, wow, wow. There is a lot to that exhibit. And, like, looking at the photos, just really gorgeous. And also, the walls are purple, which I love when museums do, like, purple walls. There's a lot to look at. Oh, and they have, like, this wallpaper. Awesome. Um, another, uh kind of like rotating exhibit thing like pulling from the collection is called object xxx selected artifacts from the museum of sex archive which was held december 16th 2015 to february 21st 2019 so you can tell when an exhibit has that kind of like long time frame this is a rotating exhibit different type of items pulled from the collection so we're not going to talk oh wow Exhibit design for this night fever new york disco 1977 to 1979 the bill Bernstein photographs. This is a highly designed exhibit. There's uh, um, mirror balls of different sizes. It's like a bar kind of design. Wow. It looks like a nightclub. This was held November 18th, 2016 to January 7th, 2019. That's a long time. The exhibition assembles 40 photographs from Bill Bernstein, taken from 1977 to 1979, accompanied by audio interviews, an immersive installation that invites viewers to experience the freedom and intoxication of the disco era. Wow. Um, wow, so description's a little outdated here. Um, it's an immersive experience designed as a pop-up disco, complete with an original ritual-long audio system. Wow. And they also had guest appearances by disco era DJs and a fully operating bar that offered retro 1970s cocktail menu. By the way, you do have to be 18 plus to come into this museum. And I guess with um, stuff like this, you had to be 21. It is really impressive. Um, next, we have another really gorgeous kind of design thing it looks like a movie theater stag the illicit origins of pornographic film this was uh i guess well it just says november 9th 2018 is it still ongoing 
Um, from the early 1900s until the late 1960s, pornographic films were predominantly short, black and white, and anonymously produced, known as stags. The first stag films appeared independently in the United States, France, Austria, Germany, Russia, Argentina, and North Africa between 1907 and 1919. From the 1910s through the early 1930s, stag films often interlaced their depictions of sex with humor and narrative plots, subverting stories and morals from folklore, folklore for the sake of satire and sometimes social commentary. As this period came to a close, humor and plot declined, increasingly subordinated to the depiction of sexual activities. At the same time, the professional filmmakers responsible for some of the most famous early stags abandoned the industry to amateur producers. Amateur production would characterize the rest of the genre's history. Hi, kitty cat. Do you want to learn about the history of porn? <laughs> <laughs> The technology used remained internationally retrograde. Almost all stag productions were silent in black and white. Even a sound and color film became the norm in the rest of the industry. This stylistic device contributed to the film's explicit allure, suggesting the reality of sex acts being performed, as well as the underground and illicit nature of the pornography pornographic film industry itself there are screenings of stag films called smokers or stag parties they were clandestine events that attracted a specific audience typically middle class heteronormative white and male these groups would gather together in american legion halls and fraternities or brothels especially outside the united states to watch pornographic films together Ooh, fun <laughs> at these characteristically raucous events audiences would drink and laugh together tease and nudge each other unknowingly and jeer and tear at the screen at the film's protagonists pursued their con conquests the films displayed here demonstrate many of the major aesthetic and thematic trends and transformations in the history of the early illicit film industry however in offering the stag genre for contemporary audiences consideration recognition also has been given to films that shed light on the cultural and social norms of the stag area and in some cases offer exceptions to them these films offer insight into the era's construction of male and female sexualities and its exclusion of non-heteronormative and non-Anglo perspectives and narratives. It is for this new and inherently more diverse contemporary audience to determine for themselves what has or has not changed from this area to present day. Wow. And like, they have like this like old desk surrounded by old pornography and it's like a computer and there's like a, like a theater and it's like an actual kind of like theater and it's like really interesting oh there's an arrow i can just oh, okay wow there's so much to talk about wow i've been talking so much and yeah i'm actually going to go back all the way to the beginning of the museum in regards to their past exhibits i'm having a lot of fun with this oh wow this one's really cool um <laughs> punk lust raw provoc provoc oh my god how do i pronounce this provocation provocation Provocation. Okay. 1971 to 1985. This was held November 29th, 2018 to November 19th, 2019. Um, this is a survey looking at the way punk, punk culture used the language of sexuality, both visually and lyrically, to, to, to transgress and defy, whether in the service of political provocation, raw desire, or just to break through the stifling gender norms and social expectations that punks refuse to let define them. It was co-curated by cultural critic Carlo McCormick, journalist, writer, and musician Vivian Goldman, and Lisa Rivera of the Museum of Sex, among other supporters. Um, it featured over 300 artifacts, including ephemera, original artworks, film, and garments worn by punk legends. The exhibition includes a wide selection from archives and private collections set within an immersive installation and soundscape, which is really interesting. I think it's really interesting when museums kind of bring other things together. Wow. That sounds so cool. 
Uh, another gorgeous. Ugh. Wait, this one doesn't. Oh, okay. Not safe for work. Female gaze. Um, this was held June 21st, 2017 to November 11th, 2018. It was co-curated by Vice Media's creators. Showcased um, and showcased over 25 emerging female artists from various disciplines dedicated to powerful feminine narratives. The artists in Not Safe for Work Female Gaze both reclaim and break out of women's historical roles as both muse and object. The exhibition showcases a fearless new visual language of desire that defies social norms and expectations. The artists featured in the exhibition are working at the intersections of identity and life experience, genre, and process. They are exploring sexuality on their own terms, bringing to light new angles of expression. From Instagram and GIF platforms to textile painting and photography, these artists take a diverse and fearless approach to sex, shattering mythologies of female sexuality and restructuring stereotypes to explore a more complex relationship between gender, pleasure, fantasy, and desire. So let's read the featured artists. Um, there's Aneta Bartos Anna. Oh, wait, no. Why are they typed weird? Okay, it looks like they're just their formatting. So I'm going to try my best. I think it's Anita Bartos, Anna Biller, Amanda Charchinian, Nona Faustine, Monica Kim, Monica Kim Garza, Rebecca Goyette, Joanna Grachowska, Martin Gutierrez. Oh, what is this? Natalie Crick, Natalie Krim, Joanne Leia. Christine Luapont Wong, Pixie Lau, Maiden Fed, Shona McAndrew. Oh my god, the way that they have the formatting, I can't tell what people's first names and last names. I'm gonna try my Sophia Narnett, Polly Nor New Level of Pornography, Tara Rice, Aaron M. Riley, Amy Ritter, Lisa with two S's, Lisa Rivera. Marie Tomanova, Stunchwes Chabala, Brandy Twilly, Paula Winkler, and Jessica Yatrovsky. I think these are people's names. Like, it is the formatting's really weird. So, that sounds really cool. Looking at the photos, like, it is like kind of like a take on that, like, white cube, but it's kind of like more um, industrial. And there's like these really gorgeous photographs and sculptures. This would have been so cool to see in real life. Wow. Okay. I love art. This one's really cool too. Um, the Sex Lives of Animals. This was held July 24th, 2008 to November 4th, 2018. In this new natural history, the Sex Lives of Animals presents an uncensored story of the birds and the bees moving animal sexuality beyond the confines of reproduction and mating towards discussions of orientation and cognition. Emergent research in the study of animal behavior reveals that animals participate in an astonishing array of sexual behaviors, conceding that sex is more than a bi biological drive to reproduce. Surprisingly, all conceivable sexual partnerships and sex acts exist from foreplay to post-coital cuddling. Animals engage in kissing, hugging, self, and mutual stimulation, oral sex, and every kind of penetrative intercourse imaginable. Sex is an animal kingdom. Sex in the animal kingdom is as nuanced as it is to the human realm. And sex for pleasure, it seems, is not just restricted to homo sapiens. The museum invites patrons to explore the most intimate part of the natural life cycle, where it is often said we are most animal-like, and apply these concepts to larger issues regarding sexuality in general. The Sex Lives of Animals showcases life-size animal sculptures created by Rune Olsen, commissioned by the Museum of Sex. 
Composed of the social materials of newspaper and tape, the sculptures explore a physical world with the intimacy and expressiveness of hand drawing. Interestingly, Olsen's animals all incorporate anatomically incorrect human glass eyes, which further juxtapose the shared instincts and urges of humans and animals. Which I kind of sounds creepy, but like actually looking at this exhibit is so interesting. Oh, pandas. Oh, three of them. Not the pandas. Oh my goodness. Three deers. Ooh. okay <laughs> that would have been so cool to see um this one's really interesting celestial bodies the couple's vr experience um this was a beta testing that was held august 18 2017 to august october 21st 2018 it was immersive room scale vr installation that brought together diplo's track set it off to a new dimension or virtual reality dimension the virtual reality experience is an exploration of anticipation, sexual attraction, identity, presence, touch, scale, comfort, daring, and spatial awareness around a shared infinite pole dance in space. <laughs> the exhibition encourages users to move out freely within the controlled environment where user movement and active participation is an integral part of the experience. In addition to a VR headset, participants are outfitted with OptiTrack motion sensors tracking movements, and up to six participants and their VR avatars can interact with each other, creating a dynamic environment. Wow. This is really interesting and weird. I, that's so cool. Um, photos and letters, people kind of like in VR headlights. So there's not like real photos um, of the inter that's really taking like interaction to a new level. Next we have the incomplete Araki Araki Sex Life and Death in the Works of Nobuyoshi Araki. February 8th, 2018 to September 3rd, 2018. Um, this is a um, photographic exhibit. It's the first major retrospective in the United States to showcase the career of the notorious and prolific Japanese photographer Nobuyoshi Araki. Um, he worked. He has worked for nearly 50 years um, and photographs intimacy. Um, it says here, his commitment to the idea that it should be immediate, unflinching, and deeply personal has resulted in a body of work that ranges from the most sexually explicit and controversial photographs to those that expose the vulnerability of love and loss. The installation is accompanied by personal perspectives of collaborators, muses, critics, fans, and fellow photographers, as well as historical artifacts which situate our case work with the social context of art history and post-war Japanese society. Over 400 books, 150 prints, and 500 Polaroids are on view. Wow, wow, wow. And the way that they're... Like, they built, like, these, like, walls. And the way that, like, the Polaroids are exhibited in books, it's, like, really interesting. And really confrontational. Wow. Okay. Canon. Juan Jose Barboza, Yubo, and Andro Rosek. October 20th, 2017 to January 9th, 2018. This is the first bilingual exhibition to be shown at the Museum of Sex. It offers an immersive experience um, commensurate with Barboza, Gubo, and Rosek's intimate and vibrant works. It's a call to action against the relentless violence at the that the LGBTQ population faces throughout Peruvian culture. Peru native Juan Jose Barboza, Gubo, and American-born Andrew Rosek um, began working together in 2013 to illuminate these social atrocity, atrocities while simultaneously commending their subject's strength and beauty. The collaboration began with um, Virgins of the Door, 
a photography series inspired by, by Spanish colonial painting and 19th century vernacular photography that reimagines transgender women as historical and religious icons. The project references the religious canon law that often targets and excludes LGBTQ voices, as well as the often genuine spiritual beliefs of LGBTQ, LGBTQ Peruvians who identify with their country's rich religious heritage. Um, the subjects are often adorned with coronets and textiles of fine Peruvian craftsmanship. The silver and gold bejeweled crowns worn in the photographs will be on display along with a 25-foot hand crocheted veil compromised of hundreds of embroidered flowers. The Boys documents an emerging community of only gay men in Peru and the role that they play in the country's cultural fabric. The setting for Los Chicos takes place with one of Peru's hidden manses. A home once lavish and regal now left nearly neglected, it stands with one of Lima's most reverted communities surrounded by pockets of new construction, high-rises, and tourist destinations. Fatherland was born from a desire to document the erasure of LGBTQ lives. This series explores the scars of violence inherent to patriarchal methodology and the intolerance that permeates rural neighborhoods, farmlands, public parks, and urban districts through a series of harrowing streetscapes where hate crimes have occurred. And these portraits are really stunning. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, next up, we have Zena Bain collaboration, which occurred July 7th, 7th, 2017 to January 2nd, 2018. They are a New York City-based luxury leather goods brand founded in 2010. It's focused on high-quality craftsmanship and innovative designs. They are called post-fetish pieces, which have been worn by celebrities as well as icons of art and culture. Post-fetish was coined by Bain's creative partner, Todd Pendu, as a decontextualizing traditional fetish gear into aesthetic accessories to be incorporated into everyday wear. Zaina Bain grew a cult audience with the personal style and San Francisco nightlife blog Garbage Dress. By 16, Bain had began her studies of the conceptual art at San Francisco's Art Institute. Soon after creating a harness for herself in 2009, she began to receive requests by her following, which led to launching the fashion line. In 2012, Bain began a full-time creative partnership with multidisciplinary artist Todd Pendu. Nudity and sexuality are constant themes in Todd Pendu's work, which he sees as the ultimate expressions of freedom. Zaina Bain's innovative harnesses have been featured in prominent fashion editorials and music videos and worn by numerous rock, numerous rock stars and celebrities. They have also collaborated with luxury brands, including... Uh, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying any of these fashion names that I can't pronounce. And Marc Jacobs and have a loyal following worldwide. Um, a, Outfits highlighted in the show include both replicas and originals of those worn by Lady Gaga, Madonna, Katy Perry, Debbie Harry, Gwen Stefani, Beyonce, and Nicki Minaj. There's an also there was an exclusive ca- capsule collection designed by Zena Bain for the Museum of Sex that was available at the museum store. This is really interesting. Like really, really interesting. Wow. Um, next we have known unknown private obsession and hidden desire in outsider art, which was held January 19th, 2017 to September 16th, 2017. Um, it showcased over 100 rarely seen works of art by self-taught artistic masters, so-called outsider artists, who have worked outside the continuum of art history. The exhibition features photographs and sculptors sculptures, and paintings, which provide provocative and sometimes disturbing insight into psychological terrain of their creators. Featured artists include Robert Anderson, Steve Ashby, Morton Barlett, Jill Bartle, or Battle, Eugene von Buchentine, I think, 
Henry Darger, Thornton, Dial, Ike, Morgan, Ori, Ramirez, Marlena, Pelosi, Miroslav, Tikshi, Edwin Lawson, Joanne Korak, Johan Garber, and Royal Robertson. The art in Known Unknown is a long way from typical art world. Many of the artists in the exhibit are self-taught with little formal education, education and range from institutionalized mental patients to intellectually disabled people to untutored isolates and eccentrics. Something the way that is worded bothers me. Their pieces were often created in seemingly unlikely places ranging from the sanctuary of psychiatric hospitals to private realms hidden within the lonely and personal jungles of teeming cities. Overall, the work is fueled by secrecy and isolation, resulting in imagery that is far from ordinary experiences of sexuality. And since information about the makers and their objects is often fragmentary, with many bodies of work discovered after the death of the artist, in many cases there is no way to know if the makers intended for the work to be on public display. Um, that's really interesting. <laughs> and there's so many more. Am I going to be able to go through all of these? I don't know. There's so many more. Let's try our best. This is going to be a, um, a really long episode, I realized. But I think that's okay because I'm actually having a genuine um, fun time right now, like reading these exhibits. Um, they are so cool. Um, I had wanted to be a sex educator when I was my early days of college. I was like, I'm going to be a history professor. Or I'm going to be a sex educator. Um, and there weren't any really like any classes on sex education. So I didn't do that, but I find it very, very interesting. Um, and I have no problem. Oh no, I clicked on this instead of that. Um, <laughs> I've no talk problem with like talking about this stuff. So, um, let's, let's move on to this exhibit here. Splendor in the grass kinesthetic camping ground, which was held June, 2015 to November, 2016. Um, for its second annual kinesthesia art commission, the museum of sex presents splendor in the grass an immersive installation by world renowned studio Druk. Splendor in the Grass translates the campground setting into a surreal adult playground where the complexities of human sexuality are at play in multiple physical, visual, and olfactory experiences. Enveloped in elaborate forest-like scenery, the sensual habitat is complete with a moving sky, campfire, and live park rangers. Five interactive camping tents connect with visitors, connect the visitors to phases of sexual simulation and the thrill of arousal, an encounter that is both whimsical and titillating. Um, it's really interesting. Like... Some of the photos are just, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, did I break the website? No, I didn't. Give me one second here. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I wish I could experience all these exhibits. Because um, there's really so much that I've missed and like I've, I haven't learned. And that makes me sad because I like to learn things. Um, some of the exhibits, of course, like older exhibits, when I since I started at the beginning or the more recent, there's going to be kind of like repeats, um, because of course they're going to do similar things. So like they have the collection, and they're like, oh, that was a hit, you know. But we're almost done. Okay, so next up we have Hardcore, a century and a half of obscene imagery. Imagery, which sounds really cool. This was held just June 13, 2015 to November 6, 2017. 
Um, again, I'm reading straight from the museum itself. In our modern internet age with thousands of explicit images available at the click of a button, the terms hardcore and pornography have been nearly synonymous. But while it is easy to imagine that hardcore is an invention of the 21st century, the desire to sexually break the boundaries of physical and social modesty has long revealed itself throughout history. Despite repeated attempts to censor, sequester, or sanitize the sexual past, artifacts left from the previous generations prove our ancestors were not as, as asexual as an expurgitated I don't know if that's a word, version of history would like us to believe. Though much has been lost or discarded, many private collections were kept hidden and secretly traded. Highlights of the exhibition include an 1855 New York City brothel guide, a hand-illustrated sex manual from the late 19th century, turn-of-the-century photographs featuring interracial sex, group sex, same-sex encounters, and sex toy use, early stag films, a late 20th century glory hole, as well as a collection of erotic artifacts hidden for nearly a century in the brickwork of a recently renovated Brooklyn brownstone. Oh, wow, that sounds incredible. So now we have another fun land. This one was called Pleasures and Perils of the Erotic Fairground. And this was held June 26, 2014 to June 11th, 2015. Um, I don't really know what makes the difference. It's really similar to the one that is currently occurring. Um, except there's, no, it's like very much the same. Actually, it's still the same. That's actually cool. So then maybe I get to see it one day. The Eve of Porn, Linda Lovelace. This was held December 9th, 2013 to May 25th, 2015. Um, again, I'm reading from the museum. In 1972, Deep Throat, the tale of a woman whose clitoris was located in the back of her throat, became a trailblazer of the pornographic genre. Performing acts of graphic sex on camera, including the signature act of Deep throating. Linda Lovelace, born Le Linda Borman, became a household name. Considered porn chic, screenings of Deep Throat were attended by celebrities from Jackie O to Jack Nicholson. Linda became both the girl that everyone wanted to attend her their party and the girl that everyone wanted to have sex with, a star-studded list including Hugh Hefner, Ted Kennedy, and Paul Newman. Lovelace has become a well such a well-known celebrity that in 1973, Milton H. Green, one of the most celebrated photographers in the world known for the black sitting of Maryland, Monroe agreed to shoot Lovelace. Never before exhibited, these lost images of Linda Lovelace have long remained under ownership of a Polish financial institution and a private owner for nearly four decades before going on auction in 2013. Purchased by Yulia and Kevin Matai of YK Gallery, Inc., the couple entered into a partnership with Joshua Green's Archives LLC, which since 2006 has been working on the restoration and marketing of 60,000 image collections created by his father, Milton H. Green. I'm kind of wondering, like, because this isn't super in-depth as um, more recent um, descriptions of exhibits, and I wonder if they actually talk about, like, some of the issues of that film and her experiences. Next, we have Grumbledoes. Um, what? It was <laughs> occurred September 25th, 2014 to January 11th, 2015. Synthesized from the imagination reality of a shadowy red light district of Lima, Peru, the plasticine made grumeldos were created by renowned Peruvian artist Eddie Pfeffer. Part kinetic theater, part art installation, and part puppet performance, Pfeffer found the inspiration for her creations, which she calls grumeldos, in the dynamic but often forgotten and rejected characters that populate the margins of society. While the grumeldos could blend in the tapestry of any city's red light district, San Pablo, Barcelona, or Bangkok, these here FIFA has created a world for seemingly straight out of the dream where these creatures can feel at home. Um, basically, it's like a little band. They're little musicians. Um, 
I'm not sure. That's a little interesting. They're like these little puppet guys. <laughs> it's interesting. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next up, we have Universe of Desire, Why We Like What We Like, which was held February 8th March to March 15th, 2014. Very short. Very, very short. Um, type, swipe, search, upload, download, post, stream. These are the new verbs of desire. Our most intimate thoughts, fantasies, and urges are now transmitted via electronic devices to wrapped audience all over the world. These transmissions from text, sex to webcam masturbation feeds are anonymous, yet personal, individual, yet collective, everywhere and nowhere, and they are contributing to the largest sexual record in date. In short, desire has gone viral, but what does this mean? And what does this reveal about us? This exhibition explores these very questions through a lens of digital experience by examining what we are searching for, how we do it, and what we leave behind on these electronic devices. In piecing this together, we begin to expose staggering truths about who we are and how we interact in this ever-changing world of modern sexuality. I could have missed more in depth. Next, we have My Life Ruined by Sex, The Works of William Kent, which was held April 4th to October 6th, 2013. This explores William Kent's um, life through his art, highlighting his skill and creativity, as well as the paradoxes that drove him, bringing his erotically charged work back to New York for the first time in nearly 50 years. From rising art star to recluse, self-taught printmaker and sculptor William Kent, in many respects embodied the title of the semi-autobiographical 1964 print My Life Ruined by Sex. While Kent's first foray into the formal art world in New York in 1962 was met with positive reviews, the New York Times declaring him a definite discovery in 1963, and noting that Kent was an artist with one eye on old carvings of the cigarette store indian type and the other on pop art at its most saucy these positive reviews could not protect him from his censorship of the time and the detrimental impact of his political critique would have upon his career his 1965 exhibition of social of sexual political prints at the calstein gallery in new york city entitled sex and violence or erotic and patriotic prints turned out to be the last straw and following its opening kent was dismissed from his post at the john slade eli house in part for creating sick works in its press and its premise uh, next up, we have Fuck Art, February 8th to March 17th, 2013. In response to the growing anti-institution sentiment pervasive in our culture, the Museum of Sex has engaged a group of 20 select street artists to occupy the third floor gallery at the Museum of Sex. Showcasing work that pushes the boundaries of our relationship to sexuality and public space, Fuck Art invites a dialogue about the power of visual provocation in urban environment. Um, let's see. Oh, this one's interesting. This is called Lovers from Hereafter, which was held October 5th, 2011 to November 4th, 2011. Why are these so short all of a sudden? Sculptor Jean-Marc LaRoche shares with us his fantasy of eternal life for the installation Lovers from Hereafter, featuring intertwining skeletons embracing one another. The installation will be on view at the Museum of Sex beginning October 5th, 2011. It includes two human-sized sculptures made of varnished resin and jointed with an invisible steel framework, an effect which resembles real bones. With regards to the Lovers of the Hereafter sculpture, Jean-Marc said they are themselves quite joyful and, th and thumb their noises at death and present the afterlife as a roll in the hay. Okay. Next, we have Obscene Diary, the Secret Archive of Samuel Stewart, Professor, Tattoo Artist, and Pornographer, which was held July 14th, 2011 to January 15th, 2012. In Obscene Diary, the rich sexual documenta documentation of one remarkable individual, a professor, tattoo artist, pornographer, and sexual record keeper, Samuel Stewart, will be unveiled. Stewart's self-documentation included a catalog of every partner in sex act, which is, okay, weird. 
illustrated through photos, diary entries, sexual, sexual record keeping, explicit drawings, and erotic literary musings. I hope he had permission. The intimate sexual record keeping of one individual is unveiled for us to see. Seward's self documentation includes a catalog of. Oh, yeah, I just read that. Oh, I have it twice. Recovered from a San Francisco attic in 2001, Seward's perverse archive recently formed the basis of the widely acclaimed biography, Secret Historian, The Life and Times of Samuel Seward, Professor, Tattoo Artist, and Sexual Renegade, which is a finalist in the 2010 National Book Award. The biography provides an amazing portrait of not only Samuel Seward, but the entire generation of men who lived in the years before Stonewall, what is dangerous to be openly homosexual. Presented to the public for the first time and only time before its donation to Spectrum's library, this comprehensive group of artifacts from the Stewart Archives forms the core of the exhibition. Using a variety of textures and wall treatments, the exhibition features a replication of Stewart's own attic apartment and asks patrons to imagine what it would be like if their own sexual histories were documented so completely. Wowie zowie. That's quite a lot, huh? I really hope he did have permission. Um, obviously, it was very secret at the same time, but. All right, we are almost done here. Then we have the Newt Artist Burlesque Revive, which was held March 31st, 2011. This is going to be a long episode. From uh, to June 27th, 2011. Burlesque is a form of American folk art theater and theater built on its seduction and humor. Descended from risque European dance traditions, comedic theatric vaudeville, traditional American burlesque was a traveling circus of bedazzled sexuality often overlooked in the official history of this country's sexual and theatrical past. Burlesque's golden age traditionally considered to be in the 1930s, provided an important pastime of affordable pleasure during the otherwise bleak Great Depression. Performers, often drawn to the burlesque, burlesque for economic reasons, stripped and teased a typically male-dominated audience with the exposure of much skin, as much skin legally permitted at the time. Beginning in the 1990s, a revival of this performative art has taken place in both New York and Los Angeles and in recent years grown into a worldwide movement. While contemporary burlesque performers drawn upon the craft of their predecessors to create art that centers around the sexual body, using the removal of clothing to make social and political commentary, they have also have new inventions and objective intentions and objectives now more than ever performers celebrate creative self-expression that promotes a culture of female sexual empowerment and body appreciation this excites this exciting synthesis of nostalgic glamour and contemporary sensibilities has exploded into a new art form captivating artists designers filmmakers journalists performers and audiences alike let's say much about the exhibit itself comic stripped january 13 2011 to january 22 2012 Comic Strip examines the history and cultural significance of the illustrators, icons, and images that have entertained and educated as well as equally misinformed the basics of sex. From the coquettish to the most explicit dirty drawings, the exhibition presents the ultimate homage to sexual fantasy inhibited by the constraints of the reality. From simple titillation to hardcore representations, comics have a long history of incorporating humor, scandal, fantasy, and fun with sex. Originally used as a form of amusement and satire intended for adults, the societal perception of comics as wholesome entertainment geared towards children has made the inclusion of sexual content particularly jarring. In recent years, comics as a media, media has grown into a potent, dynamic, and sometimes submersive form of art worthy of academic investigation. Comics focused on erotic subjects are no exception and tend to fall into two popular narratives. One uses familiar, sometimes mainstream icons in compromising sexual situations, while the other constructs the sexual encounters, acts, and personas that cannot exist in reality and are constrained by the illustrator's imagination. For some, even the creation of erotic comics is sexually charged experience, particularly if the sexual fantasy is in some way inaccessible in reality. Of Thomas, 
as Tom of Finland famously said, if I don't... <laughs> if I don't have an erection when I'm doing a drawing, it's no good. Whether mass-produced or created as individual works of art, erotic comics are a reflection of society and unabashed sexual fantasy where every sexual act ever performed or imagined exists. Um, right now, I am on um, an exhibit about the condom called Rubber. Rubber is the life history and struggle of the condom, and it shows, well, the life history and all that of the condom. And I've read so much and I'm just really upset. I'm not going to re-record. I'm so sorry because I'm just, I'm really tired of um, anger right now. Um, so the next we have Naked Ambition, which was October 8th, 2009 to January 17th, 2010. Um, this featured work from um, celebrity photographer and former photojournalist Michael Greco um, as he attended the um, AVN Awards in Las Vegas, which is um, the adult... It's adult films. <laughs> I forget the exact exact acronym. Um, the exhibition infused Greco's photographs with the words and character of those being photographed, as well as capturing a behind-the-scenes look at their voices. Um, what am I doing? Oh, um, thoughts and insecurities with his companion documentary film, also entitled Naked Ambition, by displaying another aspect of the adult industry, often stereotyped as heavy on titillation, light on depth. Naked Ambition allowed people outside the community to immediate, immediate access to the inner lives and individual personalities of popular porn culture. Next, we have Sex and Design, Design and Sex, which was held January 31st to July 15th, 2008. Um... Sex and Design, Design and Sex will present a spectrum of sexual imagery from the blatant to the subtly sensual, leading patrons through the nuances of the powerful and ever-present relationship between sex and design. Featured artifacts range from the objects that enhance our sexual exploits and play to the suggestive utilitarian and decorative pieces that construct our environments, eludicating the power of design to trigger our erotic imaginations. From digital design to clothing design, from product design to green design, sex has served as a potent use for designers and an indisputable obsession for consumers. Uh, next up, we have Kink, the Geography of the Erotic Imagination, which was held February 8th, 2007 to January 20th, 2008. Explore the world of kink, fetish, and fantasy on a journey through the erotic imagination. The template for this exhibition was Gates' highly detailed erotic or, sorry, um, founder of Gates of Heck Press, um, which is Catherine Gates. Um, uh, Gates' highly detailed erotic roadmap documenting 10 years of research in the heretofore uncharted world of kink. The map serves as both a metaphor and a guide. While it defined the rules and charted the edges of the unfamiliar, it also encouraged you to become a tourist. The roadmap included stops through leather, bondage, and shoe fetishes, and more exotic destinations, including pony play, adult babies, macrophilia, splashing, medical play, Mudlarking, body expansion, and furries. I don't know some of these. I don't know what some of these are. <laughs> Costume props, photographs, videos, and original artworks, as well as recreated environments, contributed to the highly interactive adults-only playground designed by Jennifer Kinon of Pentagram, which includes museum encourages museum visitors to explore and learn all about the world of kink and fetish, and explain how it captivates the imagination, and inspires fantasies. Handle masks and examine props and accessories, all while learning about the larger narrative themes that bind all human eroticisms together, from the most vanilla to the most kinky. Bring your camera or cell phone and document your journey into this erotic wonderland. Which is really interesting because obviously this was an older exhibit where you didn't have like Instagram. Are you okay? Are you tired of listening about museum sex? Okay. Well, you're just hitting your head. 
Um, while this exhibition is guaranteed to awaken the senses, it might, it is also designed to remind us that more often than not, fantasy itself is the most powerful means of seduction and can evoke the most powerful sexual responses. Careful. Some of the buttons you push will be your own. Okay. Next, we have action, sex, and the moving image, and it does not have a date. But, um, what's really interesting is that videos are, like, on the floor. Um, sex in and on film directly propelled the development of private video technology for the masses, including VCR and DVD players. And within the vast past few decades, the internet has made sexual imagery more instantaneously accessible than ever. No matter how much it is discussed now and demonized, however, sex images of sex in films or on television sets on computer screens and now on mobile devices are increasing everyday facet of modern culture. It doesn't really explain anything about the exhibit itself. Um, now we have Sex Machines, Photographs, and Interviews by Timothy Archibald. This was how, just says November 3rd, 2005. It explores a vibrant American subculture where sexual adventure, techno- technological ingenuity, ingenuity, <laughs> I can't pronounce, I'm like spoke so much, and heartfelt personal visions intersect. Through his documentary images and original interviews, San Francisco photographer Timothy Archibald unearths the world of contemporary sex machine enthusiasts. Provocative and full of surprises. Wow, they use provocative a lot. This exhibition features 21 of Archibald's photographs, selection from his interviews, and an array of extraordinary devices. Uh, now we have Peeping, Probing, and Porn, Four Centuries of Graphic Sex in Japan, which was held March 16, 2006 to January 28, 2007. Um, kind of interesting title here. I'm not sure if I agree with it. In Japan, artists have created erotic art for thousands of years, but nothing rivals the creative explosion of erotic imagery created during the Edo period, 1603 to 1868. From an inexpensive brothel guidebooks that explicitly pictured the pleasures of waiting, paying customers to the most elegant images of Gordison's um, Japanese prints from this period celebrated the unbridled pursuit of pleasure that defined Japan's new and flourishing urban centers. In the city of Edo, now Tokyo, the floating world of brothels, seat, and theaters at the center of this new popular culture. In particular, Edo's licensed brothel district, the Yoshiwara, was a lo- locus of both real and imagined. What is this word? Listeniness? Oh my god. Lit- why do they give me such big words? Untold sums of money exchange hands on a nightly basis in the pleasure quarter and the thousands of beautiful beauties housed behind its walls pro- provided artistic inspiration to printmaking for over 250 years. Wait, this is worded. It's a little weird. Beauties. Sounds a little fetishist. Then we have Stag, Smokers, and Blue Movies, their origins of American pornographic film, which is similar to the one I talked about before, Stags, but expands a little bit um, beyond Stags. Um, and that didn't have a date. Next is Men Without Suits, Objectifying the American Male Body, um, which was held June 16, 2005 to March 12, 2006. Um, it talks about the male body as art. Um, who makes the images? What is their purpose? Who consumes them? Men Without Suits asks and answer these and many more questions, exploring the nature of male erotic appeal, the objectification of the male physique, and the notions of the male nude as both a fantasy and a commodity. Um, we're almost done. We're almost done. Next, we have Vamps and Virgins, Evolution of American Pinup Photography from 1860 to 1960. This was October 7th, 2004, June 12th, 2005. Um, oh, this was the second anniversary. And <laughs> the exhibition traced the development of classic pinup photo from early hardcore imagery in the mid-19th century to the, her apex and cheesecake images of the 1950s. According to exhibit 
exhibition curator Jennifer Cabot. Vamps and Virgins explores the secret history of the pinup, which mirrors mainstream 20th century history and charts how the role of the women has changed and their images have been employed for more than 100 years. At its inception, erotic photography was more explicit than contemporary images. Traded privately, these pictures now have a quaint feel with their couples and threesome, foursomes, and more, sporting serious expressions of often matching costumes. Toned down as the images spread at the populace at large and in postcard form, the pinup started to wear the camp coy expressions that are the genre's hallmark, reaching her high point with Betty Page. After Page, the style changed again, turning towards the explicit look of the contemporary centerfold. Next, we have Sex Among the Lotus, 200... 2,500 Years of Chinese Erotic Obsession, March 18, 2004 to January 30, 2005. Um, Sex Among the Lotus, 2,500 Years of Chinese Erotic Obsession provided visitors with a sweeping survey of Chinese erotica from erotic Bronze Age poetry and tomb tile with explicit imagery dating from the 2nd century BCE to the sexual excesses of the emperor and his court and the latest pornography hot off the commercial presses. Okay. Now we have... Get Off, Exploring the Pleasure Principle, which was held March 18, 2004 to January 30, 2005. This was their first contemporary exhibition featuring the work of established and emerging artists at the time who, where they um, investigated sexual titillation as a means to examine their relationship with pleasure in society. This took a humorous look at the age-old art of stimulation, which expressed in a variety of media ranging from video, sculpture, photography, painting, and performance. Um, artists included A.A. Bronson, Greg Curry, Jane Dixon, Lisa Delio, E-Team, Terence Coe, Joseph Maida, Laurel Nakadate, and Dora Malik, Tom Otterness, Tuopstwo Poyo, Karim Rashid, Mabi Revulta, and Michael Skemling and Michael Salakus. And, of course, their first exhibit, New York City Sex, How New York City Transformed Sex in America. And this was held October 5th, 2002, the opening of the museum to October 3rd, 2003. Robert Maplethorpe, Maplethorpe dies of AIDS and a retrospective, including his photographs of Manhattan's gay leather seen as canceled, setting in motion the culture wars in the 1990s, which I am going to talk about, by the way, one day. Sylvia Ray Rivera, ooh, this is dated, a transgender street hustler, is among the young people who re resist a typical police raid on a gay dive in Greenwich Village on June 28, 1969, thus launching a watershed event that became to be known by the bar's name, Stonewall. A former GI from the Bronx goes to Denmark in 1950 and returns to New York two late years later, as the women they were always were, named Christine Jorgensen out as Christine Jorgensen guarding national headlines of the first celebrity transgender woman. This language is very dated. Um, so I'm just changing it so no one, um, and when I say gets triggered, I mean not like literally like this can be upsetting. After nearly three lukewarm decades in vaudeville, Brooklyn born Mae West hits Broadway in 1926 with a persona derived from the styles of Greenwich Village gay men, Harlem dancers, and Bowery um, sex workers within six years. She's packing her bags for Hollywood. I believe defying a federal law that regards such acts as obscene, Margaret Sanger goes to jail in 1917 for operating a clinic that dispensed information about birth control. She's well on her way making birth control legal in America. New York City was the locale of many of the most critical events in the history of sex and sexuality in America. And in these processes, in the process of these events, many New Yorkers were thrust into the headlines and into history, either by chance or design. 
The New York's role in transforming American attitudes about sex was just more than a result of everyday rebellions in the quieter lives of people's anonymous to history. The neighbors in the apartment next door who lived under the subterfuge of lesbian sisters and gay bachelors. New York City Sex, How the New York City Transformed Sex in America investigates the sexual subcultures of the city's past and present and explores the means by which they have influenced the development of modern attitudes about sex and sexuality. And there we have it. Those are the past exhibits of the Museum of Sex. And it's taken me a long time to read all of them. I'm so sorry, but they're so interesting. So there you kind of have it. That is the Museum of Sex. And they've had the most amazing exhibits. They're so interesting. Um, and especially the more, the newer ones, the way that they are designed are just, wow, incredible. I really, really want to visit. And I hope to one day. <laughs> Shut up. You're not sorry. Um, I hope to visit one day. It would be really, really cool. Um, and I think I will learn a lot. I've already learned a lot just by reading the past exhibitions. And there's so many things that I want to read about further. Um, you have to be 18 or older and you do have to show an ID. And they're just basically your typical museum, but um, it's about sex. And I know that can be kind of weird and funny and like, and that can be very difficult also. And I think that this museum addresses a lot of that. And I think that's really cool. Okay. I had a really great time recording this. And I know that a lot of it was me just reading straight from the website, but it was really great. And I suggest checking out their website, checking out the photos and stuff. Um, and yeah, I hope that maybe you learned something and you found something really interesting about this. I am tagging this episode as explicit, um, by the way. So yeah, um, it's good to be back to recording. Um, I'm going to be posting hopefully a little bit more on the Facebook page, um, trying to figure out some things externally to do with the podcast, not like just in the episodes. We'll see. And I might talk about that next week. Um, yeah. So, um, in regards to what I talked about previously, and, um, there's going to be information within the podcast description with like the Venmos and stuff. Um, again, make sure to, um, like, if they're frozen or they're not working, just give it time and check out the GoFundMes for updates. That's a really good place for financial updates. And GoFundMes can kind of take a lot of money more more than, like, like if they ask for 5000 you know, you can donate, like, 10000 you know. Um, yeah, so that'll be in the description. I hope you learned something. And you'll hear from me next week. It's been really good to record this. So, all right. This has been For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I've been your host, Rhea. Bye.